Welcome to American Girlies, the podcast where Canadian historians read the American girl novels. I'm Margot Mathieu. I'm Hannah Sparwasser Soroka. And I'm Sonia Ann, and I'll be hosting the episode today. Today's book is Changes for Kirsten, published in 1987 and written by Janet Shaw. So as usual, we're going to have a little quick summary of the book, then some historical context, and then on to the discussion. So the summary for this one is Papa Larson is gone for the winter at a logging camp to earn money, and Kristen is working on trap lines with her older brother Lars and some of the other boys. She finds an injured raccoon while she's out there, and she brings it home, but she decides to bring it into the house, and then it knocks over her lamp and sets the whole house on fire, so everything burns down. And the Larson family have to move in with uh, Aunt Inger and the cousins until they can figure out what to do about a house. But there's another family that's leaving for the Oregon Trail, and they could potentially buy their house, but it's super expensive. But luckily, Kirsten and Lars find a dead man who had a bunch of furs from his trap lines, and then they take the furs and sell them and buy the house. Amen. It was a great read. It really was, though. It, it was, but just what a what a tonal shift. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of feelings about this plot. I don't know if you had the experience, but when Kirsten and Lars are arguing about whether to loot the home of the dead man, <laughs> uh, I briefly, my, my brain briefly went to space. Uh, I don't know. What, how did you feel about the looting? I mean, honestly, this just felt like Skyrim circa 1856. Like, well, Sky's dead, so I guess I can take all his stuff and level up in my life, you know? Uh, So for the context of this episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about the sort of logging camps that come up in this book, as well as the Oregon Trail. So winter logging camps were super common in Minnesota through the mid-19th century as the demand for lumber was increasing due to industry. And these were typically about 70 lumberjacks, most of whom were migrant or seasonal workers. And they would clear an area, build a bunkhouse out of those first logs, and then get to work actually cutting wood for profit. And the reason they would do this in the winter was because the dirt roads turn into ice roads, which makes it easier to transport all this wood, right? Because you can put it on a sleigh and sort of glide it over the ice and then leave it at the riverside. And then once the spring thaw happens, the water level in the rivers rises and you can push the logs into the river and kind of drive them down the river to sawmills. This doesn't really change until the 1890s when you see the introduction of trains being used to take logs from one place to another. And part of the reason that the Stewart family is moving to Oregon and taking the Oregon Trail is because the father of their family is going to be managing or running a a logging camp out there. So this is just one of the reasons that people would take the Oregon Trail There was also the gold rush at this point and, of course, homesteads. So in particular, you had the Donation Land Act of 1850, which gave free land to white settlers in Oregon and, of course, drove migration. The act expired in 1854, but even after that, land was extremely cheap. So you had huge migration in that direction. This was... Of course, super dangerous, as anyone who's played Oregon Trail will know. Um, An estimated 10 to 20,000 people died taking this trail, but it's hard to have an exact number. A lot of the deaths were caused by hypothermia, drowning, wagon and animal accidents, and then as well as... That's coming up, don't worry. (laughs) Um, And of course, you also had attacks by indigenous groups because these people were here to 
steal their land effectively. So that seems reasonable. But yes, Margo, the main cause of death was disease. Cholera killed an estimated 3% of all travelers and typhoid and dysentery were also common because these were all fecal oral diseases. So basically they become very, very common on this trail partly due to burial of bodies near water sources, which can contaminate the water, but also just poor sanitation in general when you have hundreds of people living out of covered wagons. And you also had diphtheria and measles that were super common, especially among children, since there was no place to quarantine the sick and everyone was sort of mingling together. Um, so these diseases could spread really fast through groups. And I just think that's important to keep in mind when we're reading the bit in this book where all the kids are excited about the Oregon Trail. I'm like, wow, this is going to be a fun adventure. And you're like, oh, yeah, Mary almost certainly time, gets to Theria. Every time I've taken the Oregon Trail, I've either died of dysentery or was crushed by my ox in a river when my axle on my wagon <laughs> broke. A fun fact here is that the game Oregon Trail uh, was developed in 1971, so the game is over 15 years old at this point. So, like, mm -hmm. I would assume that these kids have some passing knowledge of the Oregon Trail as the place where you die of dysentery. Um, but the kids reading the book, not the not like the John children. No, 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 not John and Mary who <laughs> predate video games, but the child readers of the book would be like would be aware of the game and the horrible ways you can die in the game and might experience some concern for John and Mary that none of their friends have for them. But on that note, I think it is time for us to get into the actual content of this book and start going through the wonderful plot. I, I'm saying that not sarcastically. It actually has a solid plot for once. Yeah. I was delighted by the level of the stakes. The fact that, you know, in the last book, the Larsons uh, survive a bear encounter by climbing a tree, which is not bear safety. Don't do that if you encounter a bear. But, but in they this keep, one, you know, in this one, there was consequences for silly yeah. Billy behavior. We open strong with uh, Lars and his friend John, who's part of the Stewart family that's going to take the Oregon Trail later. And they're arguing over whether or not Kirsten should get to come out to the trap lines with them because John is saying, no, it's too dangerous for a girl. And then Lars, who we love, Lars Larson, great character, says, no, Kirsten knows the ways of the animals. She's going to be super Does helpful. she, though? She Does doesn't. Does she, though? Because, but... like, just one <laughs> book ago, girl was getting her whole family eaten by bears. And well, as we see she... in, like, another, like, 15 pages, she also burns her whole family's house down with raccoon shenanigans. Girl but does also... not know the way of the animals. But also my thought at this point, and I would love to hear your take on this, is it does John have a crush on Kirsten? Is this because he's being right? really mean about her coming along, but she clearly comes along pretty regularly? Is this how he flirts with her? And then right at the end, spoiler alert, he makes her a beautiful present to leave behind and she gets a present. He doesn't leave a present for Lars. And so I'm wondering, is John... Is John sweet on Kirsten? What do you think? What is your take? I think that it's... Yeah, I was also getting vibes that John felt some kind of way. But, you know, Kirsten's like... I, I'm not... Because he is 13. He's younger than Lars. And Kirsten's like 10? Which, not well, the best the age gap. But, but... I don't know how old they are in this one because uh, Peter in the pictures is child-sized and not four years old anymore and is wearing yeah. long trousers. And they keep referring to things that happened in prior books like they happened a while ago. So there's a moment when 
they're walking home in the dark and Kirsten gets really anxious and Lars says, don't worry, remember that one time you found a cave with dad? Yeah, it's it's unclear how much time has passed. So she could be 11, she could be 12, she could be 10. We don't know. Either way, do you think that this book is doing that John is mean to you because he's sweet on you? Well, it does seem like it's, this is the thing. So as a certified romance novel reader, I can say they were hitting all of the points of a, like, what in like a contemporary romance would be like a enemies to friends to lovers thing because they have him being mean and condescending um specifically about her like gender and then they have him being like impressed by her ability her then reminiscing about his cute little smile um and but then like he just he like leaves so like it was like the first half of the book was setting up this thing and then he shows up and it's just like i'm super excited to leave and never see any of you people again uh because right like it's not like they're going to easily come back for like weekend visits like this is a i'm gone forever and i live in oregon now so that was disappointing but but you know what kirsten does get out of this adventure a little raccoon friend. So she finds the for, raccoon for five pages. Yes, I'm just saying. I think if she didn't, she didn't get to hang out with John as much. But she does find a raccoon out <laughs> out in the woods. And you know what? I think John was right that she shouldn't have come. Shouldn't have come because she brings home the raccoon. What's her mom tell her? She tells her immediately, like, "Hey, it's dangerous to keep this wild animal around." Maybe don't do that. Can you, at the very least, keep it in the barn? What does Kirsten immediately do? The second mama Brings leaves, it in the house. <laughs> brings it in the house. Brings and I'm like, listen, this is my moment for... Raccoons are not cute. They're not your friends. They carry rabies. And even if they don't have rabies, their urine and fecal matter all carry diseases like salmonella and raccoon roundworm. So Kirsten was just bringing disease into the house. So great job, Kirsten. Terrible plan. And of course, the second she brings the raccoon inside, it knocks over the oil lamp and everything catches on fire. Including, by implication, the raccoon. We never see the raccoon again. Yeah, no, we no, never the see raccoon the raccoon died again. I was going to ask about The that. captain went down with the ship. <laughs> the raccoon just burns up. I love yeah, how we so introduce they... it and then just never follow up on it again. Yep. Um... But yeah, Sonia, you and I both grew up in areas where there were raccoons and raccoons were bad news. Yes, um, they're they're not buddies. Where we know of them as uh, trash-stealing, clever little weirdos who will get incredibly violent and are bizarrely strong uh, if you challenge their access to your trash. Exactly. So, yeah, I saw this coming. I was like, oh, the raccoon's going to bite the baby. Yep. Because Ken... And then we're going to have an amputation subplot. (laughs) Because what did you guys think of this? Because right before the raccoon burns down the house, we again have, like, uber-parentified Kirsten. Like, her mom is going to Aunt Inger's house to bake bread because Aunt Inger has, like, a better oven. And she tells Kirsten, no worries, it's just, it's your job now to care for the baby and wash the diapers while I'm gone, and also teach Peter his numbers. Oh yeah, and there's like I'm a like, whole long list is... of stuff that Kirsten has to do. And she finishes it. So it's not just like, hey, as a special favor, could you do like six things? I'm really sorry, this is an exception. It's, and today, as every day, I need you to wash the house and wash the baby and feed the baby and feed your brother and teach him math and put the baby for down for her nap and wash all the diapers and put all the diapers back on the baby and then do this with your brother. And Kirsten just finishes her sentences. So yeah. there's clearly a pattern here. And obviously it's historically accurate that older children helped with younger children. And that's yeah. really common to this day. But there is a level at which... The mother's just like, well, you're the close, you know, Lars is not asked to do anything because he's a boy. 
Uh, and he's not around in this scene for whatever reason. But it's just... Because he's out here's, trapping, I'm assuming. There's no scene where he's like, I'm going to go out trapping. But yeah, there's this whole... Back. Yeah, he's, he's just already gone before breakfast even. So I, I guess... Out yeah so no yeah or? she's he's out trapping with john oh, yeah. because they say like okay. that they wish they could go to school and here's the list of stuff and then she says she wished she could go on the trap line again today with lars and john but mama needed her right. to stay uh, in the cabin and work yeah and then but she also chips like... ice off the window <laughs> and wonders about the raccoon getting better but also uh she's Probably ten. Yeah, and, like at most yeah, she can be eleven because they haven't had. Yeah, yeah, it's not like years and years have passed. So I just feel like you know, part of me does sympathize with her going and okay, you're clearly like working so hard and doing all this very very adult work without any adults in the house by the looks of it. Because Papa's at the logging camp and Mama is leaving to like go and bake bread and stuff. So. I, I kind of can't be too mad at her for bringing the raccoon into the house because she was a 10 or 11 year old left unsupervised. And yeah, you're probably going to do something stupid like that. So yeah. And it's not just the parentification. Think. It's also the fact that, you know, part of her job is to make sure that her brother gets some kind of education, mm-hmm. but she's clearly not getting any. Exactly. And it's, I don't know. I, I, rewatched all of shiny happy people last night it was great they talk about this when they talk about the homeschool anywhere when you make an 11 year old responsible for the education of a six-year-old that 11 year old no longer gets to have needs educational or otherwise and that is exactly what happens to to uh kirsten right she doesn't get to have needs at all because she's responsible for two small children she has to just whatever she wants is entirely tertiary to the needs of the household and the needs of her younger siblings. Um, and of course that breeds dumb behavior because she's not getting her needs met by her family, but maybe this raccoon will make her feel better. Exactly. And now this is the other question I had because I'm not up on my fire safety, but it's an oil lamp. That the raccoon that she knocks throws over. water on. Yes, and that's. I'm like, would that not make it exponentially worse? It's a, yes, it just what, spreads the oil and the fire to more places. Yeah. What you should do is throw either a big blanket on it and smother it, or dump salt mm. on it, or yeah. you know something yeah. like baking soda, something in you know like that. Not flour. Yeah, flour will combust it. massively. But yeah, we've talked about this in past episodes, but this is a family that's going to have to be salting their meat all winter or for winter. Exactly. So presumably they have lots of it. And yes, that would have been a silly waste of salt, but also better than the whole place burning down. Yeah. And I just, I don't know how you guys felt about it, but I thought that was a little bit not great to put in a children's book that oh yeah actually putting a little water on this oil fire helped but then it 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 wasn't enough water so she needs to get more water to to throw on it like she grabs the coffee pot and throws that on it and i'm like i i just think maybe a little bit of like between the the bad idea about bear safety where it's like if you encounter a bear climb a tree and hey kids if there's ever a grease fire in your house water on it like just feels a little irresponsible when i was in university in like the second year when we were in university housing but it was like set up like apartments somebody's like stir fry caught fire like that right and they poured water on it and then it exploded like the water splashed and it got all over the wall and it almost burned our entire building down and from then on we had to watch these videos before we went into the student (laughs) housing about like fire safety and all of these things um that was super fun (laughs) well but this is the other thing where contemporary kids (laughs) these things you know people people who don't necessarily have to do a ton of cooking or don't have to learn a ton about fire safety before they're 18, 19, 20. Um, 
you don't know that. Oh, the other thing you can do is just slam a pot lid on it and let yes. it burn itself out. Yeah, that's out. like so. If it's if it's in your pot, that's what you're supposed to do. But you would think that somebody whose entire life revolves around like open flame would know these things. But that's yes. neither here nor there. Their house there burns would have down. Been- grease fires before because presumably they're yeah. using tallow to cook and butter and like those are flammable substances yeah and yeah yeah anyway and can their house burns supplement down. their oil lamps and, then, and all of these things and then yeah. they're at the um at their they're staying with the aunt and uncle they only have that one trunk of stuff everybody's upset about it and then the stewart kids come over which is uh, shout out to mary our queen of your mother's gonna <laughs> die and i don't care at all <laughs> now it's mary's mother's turn to die of dysentery mary, yeah, mary and dysentery. they're like we have great news we're leaving on the oregon trail and it's like why is that great news my guy but also they're going to sell their house for $500 and they find out that Papa is going to make like $100 on at the logging camp. Which I just want to point out that I want to live in a world where you can work for one season and have be like a fifth of the way towards purchasing a new house a fancy house like yes, multiple stories glass, glass windows, windows like yeah. the whole deal yeah because they say like, that damn. the Stuart house has four <laughs> rooms and each has a window and they have a wood floor and a shingle roof and in the illustration yeah. it's shown as a two-story Stories. house like it's luxury i think so, it's two two rooms downstairs two rooms upstairs yeah that would make sense to me but like, it's, we way, that's like, more rooms they, than i have <laughs> yeah. I have yeah. I've got three and a half. And I'm I'm like, just kind of I, I'm wondering how you guys felt about this with does it make sense for the Stuart family, who appears to have a very nice settled life and a very nice house, to risk it all on the Oregon Trail? Like that was an interesting decision. So I'm gonna go with no because also this is like a f- like fully far enough out that everybody knows what happened to the Donner party too. Yeah. Like <laughs> the Oregon trail isn't some like easy, super nice thing. Like it's not, I don't think it's as frightening 10 years out as it was when like the Donner party ended up eating each other, which that's also a hilarious story. I mean, it's not hilarious. It's like they ate each other, but it's funny in the way that like the um, the story of the oh what the terror and the whatever those boats that got lost where the people then ate each other up looking for the Northwest Passage. Oh, yeah. Okay. As you yeah, say, the whale ship it. Essex, which they also ate each other. No, the the one um, looking for the Northwest Passage, where there were the two boats, and the guys ate each other, and the then like the Canadian government and stuff couldn't find them forever, and the indigenous people of the area were like, "Oh no, those boats are up there, and those people ate each other." The Donner Party got lost because they had a guide who didn't know. They they bought these maps from this guy who said that he was a guide, had never actually been on. The, that part of the Oregon Trail and indigenous people in the town where he was selling the maps was like do not listen to that guy he doesn't know what he's talking about and if you leave now you're gonna get snowed in on that passage like you cannot go that way and they that's hired exactly- some indigenous guides actually who like when things yeah. started going sideways in the frozen in passage and the snowed out passage so some they of bailed them they were like they were like this looks like people are the gonna party- start eating people and we were yeah. on the menu we're out yeah, yeah the party splits up some of them don't they're like we don't trust these people and they end up dying in a cave uh eating each other um and are found later so like i just i sorry i really think i think that the stories of like colonists being ridiculous are funny <laughs> because uh, it's it's just it's so common there's so many of these stories where they're like oh my gosh what a mystery like how are we going to do this and then like an indigenous person shows up and it's like yo there's like safety five kilometers that way if you just come with me and they're like back demon and then like have to eat their brother's foot or something like that and die anyway 
um it's hilarious and like the the terror which gets iced in right as the they're Arabus going up that way yes the Arabus and the terror they uh they're going up and the indigenous people stop them before they go up and they're like that is going to freeze over it freezes over most of the time the last time you were up here it was a weird warm winter don't go up there and they do anyway and then indigenous people find them like walking on the ice and they're like hey do you need help and they're like back demon uh and then they eat each other after eating like all of their boots and clothes uh, they probably also just, had lead poisoning from the can. Yes, from the the tinned food, which was and like and, and botulism because the inexplicable the tins all all con- all contracted slash expanded in the heat slash cold. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's, anyway, it's a fun disaster. But back to the, the point the is <laughs> about this logging camp. The thing exactly. I wanted to say is that logging camps are not nice places to live or work. Like they are no. very temporary. So the Stuarts are giving up a very comfortable, settled existence in Minnesota to go live amongst lonely, sad men who are not happy or comfortable and are doing a dumb, extractive, dangerous job for purely mercantile reasons. Like, this is not a super great environment in which to have a family. That just sounds like a really terrible time for the kids. Yeah, and it just sounds like a really big risk to take, given that you do have... We know that they have at least two children. They might have more that aren't mentioned. And trying to take that Oregon Trail with a whole family sounds very, very dangerous. But you know who it does make sense for to go on the Oregon Trail? Lars. Because we get this gem where Lars finds out about the family moving, and he immediately says, the Oregon Trail, I'd give anything to be going with you. And then he says that he wants to go to Oregon as soon as he can and like make his own way. And I'm like, you know what? You're right, Lars, justice for you. Earlier in the chapter, he's sleeping on the floor. We're given the indication that Lars doesn't get a bed. Last book, he didn't have shoes and was doing work in the fields and like raising barns and stuff with the other men i i think lars you know what i support you get yourself a wagon get out of that family head west like do i support settler colonialism no but like he at least makes sense to me i'm like i can see you wanting to get out of this situation where you're not being cared for whatsoever and like you could probably make a go of it as like a migrant lumberjack for a while earn some cash but the Stewart family? And he's no. 15. That's a totally reasonable time for, like, a young man to go out west on his own. On I mean, in, own, like, a few years. At least years. in this period. In, well, you know, yeah. like, 15, well, yeah, 16, been... like, a lot. That was yeah. really common. That's true. So, That's true. like, I live, it up, live it up, Lars. Follow your sweet little boyfriend. <laughs> I have a question, there. and I don't know the answer. The, tr- the true all, breakdown. <laughs> whether Oregon at this point is already pitching itself as a white utopia. Is that later or is that already at this point? Um, I'm because the state sure of Oregon... Starts I don't think really that's started early. yet. The state of or Oregon was it? incorporated into the United States as an explicitly whites-only state, right? Yes, but yeah. my and question yeah. is... When we are is at it the pre-statehood phase. Right, yeah, because so they it's, aren't it's, a state yet definitely racist but i don't know if there's official policy yeah about who is and isn't welcome to settle here and drive out the indigenous population yeah from what i was reading it was that the free land that had been offered was only for white settlers but i don't know if anyone was barred from buying land out there yet at at this point, because this book is still taking place in December of eighteen forty four, Oregon passed its Black Exclusion Law, which prohibited so, okay. well, there we go. So it is just territory while already. simultaneously prohibiting slavery. So it's been two years, yeah, or twelve years. Sorry, since this law was yeah. passed, yeah. and or thirteen something like this. It's been over ten years, and the Stuarts, like this, is never mentioned in the looking back peek into the past section uh and you yeah 
anyway, I wanted to flag that as part of the history of the Oregon Trail yes. and what's going on, which is that Oregon is not only a settler colonial state, it is an apartheid state slash official yeah. like a segregation zone in which black people aren't allowed to yeah so it's on not a permanent it's basis. not it's not an apartheid state it yeah. is fully like you're not allowed to enter the territory and so before that law um slave owners had entered the state and like or entered the territory and bought land and they were given um a three-year window in which to free their sl- either leave or free their slaves and then the like newly emancipated people would have to leave the state or they would be arrested and beaten and then transported out of the state so it wasn't like it wasn't like an apartheid state where like oh well only white people can buy land it was only white people can be here yes right so uh i wanted to fly and if you go to oregon today it's still like really really white Yeah, I mean, I mean it's like see. oh, it's like this super nice liberal utopia, and it's like it's really easy to think that everybody should have rights when everybody looks like you. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Although, Oregon. <laughs> You're doing I can great. understand yeah. why people of color look at Oregon and are like, "Nah, I'm not moving there. That's not taking that chance." <laughs> like, yeah, no, not totally. today. So, I think now it's time to address the elephant in the room, the corpse in the cave, if you will. The climax of the story, which is finding old Jack. So, we haven't really talked about him yet, but he's supposed to be this guy who's been living off the land on his own, went out with like an expedition decades ago and stayed on. And Kirsten is very afraid of this man. But of course, she and Lars in chapter four are out in the dark in the winter on their trap lines. And of course, they they stay out too late. And I just think, yes, and I think Kirsten getting lost in the dark in the winter is like a recurring theme in these books. Which is just an interesting choice. But so they find a trail of snowshoes and Lars says, oh, that must be old Jack because he's the only person who would like have these old fashioned snowshoes and he's the only one living way out here. And I need to know how you guys felt about the next point of this plot line, which is they go and they find old Jack who lives in a cave and he's dead. Uh, yes, the thing about the old jack encounter (laughs) is that because they get lost or detained after dark and are wandering around the woods they find old jack's cave house because they find his snowshoe tracks which are still fresh yeah but he's like frozen solid supposedly so either it hasn't snowed in a couple days or this is but a like fresh a lot of corpse. a lot of days. Yes. Yeah. Like it. Because I just so they get in and they see old Jack and they're like, "Hi, old Jack, can you help us?" And old Jack is dead. He's just perfectly preserved, sitting in his fire by his dead. His fire's gone out, but he's sitting by the fireplace, looking entirely like himself, but he's dead. Yeah, I assume that this has to be a relatively recent death, for sure, because there's no decay yet. Well, but also he would just, he's like, he would freeze. He's frozen. Yeah, that's that's true. He is Which, frozen. Which, like, I feel like, doesn't it take but a yeah, while like the to, only way that person to freeze all the way through? I don't know. We don't need to get down this rabbit hole of, like, exactly We don't how, need to go down do this. The whole freeze. point is... No, but... But I do want to kind of poke my head into the rabbit hole, which is that even if he hasn't been dead very long, you would notice because without anybody there to arrange his body, first his muscles would slacken and then rigor mortis would set in. So he would be like eyes rolled back in his head, jaw slack, limbs slack. Like, he would be very clearly dead. And not just a nice old man looking kind of like Santa who's just 
Yeah, can we appreciate for a moment that he's included in the illustration of this chapter? Sure They were like, we could gloss over drawing a picture of the dead body, but no, we're going to lean into it. And honestly, I respect it. (laughs) And then, and and this is where the cosmic terror set in for me is, uh, it becomes very clear early on that they're going to have to sleep in the room with the corpse. And also, at some point, at some point, other things set in, like your body begins. I mean, it's it's cold enough. Yes, but they do. Yes, they, like, they light a small fire. They would freeze. So he's thawing. Yeah, he's thawing and oozing. likely oozing. His he's gut oozing bile a bit. is starting to decay. Like yuck. And and that's fine and a normal part of decay, but he's not just going to sit propped up in his chair looking all nicey nice until spring happens um i think i'm getting ahead of myself i was so overwhelmed by the corpseness of it but yeah i don't know we should tell the listener what they do in the cabin this great ethical discussion yeah so they find they they're like oh well we have to stay here and then they realize that the whole back of the cave is full of like the finest quality pelts which i would like i know like none of us can probably answer this question um not being actual trappers ourselves but i would think that if you are hunting for like the pelt specifically that you would want to use the kinds of traps that old jack is using because it like he has like snares right that wouldn't then damage the skin of the animal and they're using like metal claw traps um which is obviously like more likely to kill the animal immediately but also would like damage the actual fur and stuff but if somebody if somebody listening is, you know, like a woodsman of some kind and knows the answer to that, I would be interested. But yeah, he's got like hundreds and hundreds of pelts and they're like, oh, with all of these finest quality pelts, we'll be able to buy the house. So they get like four hundred dollars worth of pelts. And Kirsten's like, we shouldn't steal from dead people and Lars is like, yeah, but I know that he doesn't have any, like, family or anything to inherit this stuff from, like, we're not even gonna check, just, it's ours now. And (laughs) Papa, who always does what is right, which I think we can confirm from previous texts is not true, uh, (laughs) Papa would tell us to take all of this stuff. And so they... They go to sleep for the night and then in the morning proceed to, I assume, go and get. No, they had the toboggan like, with a them. They used his toboggan. Something of some kind. So they load up the pelts. Okay, yeah. So they take, they take all, they raid his cave house thing and buy themselves a fancy new house. And my issue with this story which like I get it the plot is better laid out than the other ones but I find the moral of this story or not really I don't know the moral the message of the story deeply troubling because it feels very much like yes there are consequences in this one in that their house does burn down because of Kirsten's foolishness but in the same way that like oh well we won't get eaten by the bears because we just run up a tree it's like if you accidentally burn your family's house down don't worry you'll stumble (laughs) across a dead guy full of money and be able to buy a better house like there aren't real consequences and i understand that it's a children's book but i mean if anything that kind of makes it worse though that it's a children's yeah i'm torn right because i feel like if it's if it's literature aimed at adults right then yeah i think you can have that happen and trust that a grown person can understand that's unlikely in real life that's unlikely to happen and like actions have consequences and whatever but if you're writing a book for kids and it's specifically an educational book for kids. And the moral of your story is it's okay if your house burns down because something will just work out. But also, like it'll just be fine. 
Like, I find that quite strange. The thing that really troubled me about the looting the dead man's house scene isn't that they took his stuff. Like, that makes sense. It's pragmatic. It's awful, but it's pragmatic. I understand why they made this decision. There's a scene early in the book where John is like, oh, old Jack doesn't have a family and he never did. Like, that's literally the line, I think. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So early on, it's established that old Jack is an entirely solitary person. And that's kind of confirmed by the fact that he's a living like Radagast the Brown in a cave with a door. Um, (laughs) And then, yeah, I don't, that didn't bother me so much. What bothered me is the way Lars justifies it, which is to say, it's fine because in the spring, I promise to come back and dig him a grave. Which, like, yeah, you would, yeah, Yeah. it's hard to bury people in the frozen ground, but, like, a corpse, I mean, corpse disposal on the frontier is a lot of burying people in poorly constructed shallow graves because the ground's frozen. Um, And then animals get them. Like, that is a thing that happens. Well, also people would also store, store body. body. So like, like this is a thing somewhere. where people would store body in the yeah, and then bury it later. Yeah. I'm not as concerned about that. I like, but there's also this. Yeah, I just I know that I have like having previously been a child, I know that I have been like, <laughs> unlike all of you, <laughs> having previously. Been- I. I, for one, sprang out of the ground fully formed. Thank you very much. I've previously been a child. I know that, like, stories with real consequences can be slightly traumatizing. Like, I read where the red fern grows. Your dog gets eaten by a, you know, gets attacked by something. It will die. And then your other dog will die of sadness and your life will be forever changed. But, like, at least I mean, I, I do just know think that, that there's like, a difference between. Sorry. Well, so, like, and I think from a pedagogical standpoint, that like in terms of if we're going to actually talk about what life on the frontier was like for people like the Larsons who clearly did not have enough money to like really be have like a comfortable barrier between them and like death and like you know the elements I don't think that it's I don't think that it's doing any favors in like actually depicting this to show Kirsten literally destroying everything they have, them just being super comfortable in on Inger's house, aside from Lars, who doesn't get to sleep on anything. <laughs> Sucks to suck <laughs> Lars. Um, Justice for and Lars. And then they just like stumble onto, you know, $400, which we've already established is like four, four years worth of money. Um, that doesn't that doesn't set up like how precarious people were, especially for somebody living in like the boom of the mid twentieth century, where for most Americans, for a significant portion of Americans, shit was just easy, you know. Like, and to to talk to the children of the nineteen eighties. I just think if you're trying to if you're trying to tell these stories, these slice of life stories that are going to depict what life was like, you should be showing like how precarious it is that like Kirsten wouldn't bring an animal <laughs> into the house and that they would be deathly afraid of fires, especially because it's so, so very unlikely, even if you live in a place where there are resources like a fire brigade, that like fire is this like ultimate terror bears are this like ultimate terror there are things that are just like existentially threatening to people living in the 19th century fire is one of them more i think probably more so for people in urban areas where fires were likely to spread but like that is destroying everything that keeps you from dying in the winter and also is the only thing that is keeping you so it's like it's like both of those ends of like this is the thing that's going to keep me from freezing to death and also this is the thing that has a like could destroy absolutely everything that's keeping me alive so like i don't know i just feel like there's but also yeah i mean i think this is the thing right is that there is a there is a middle ground to be had here yeah 
Like, do I think that every book has to be Bridge to Terabithia or Where the Red Fern Grows, where like everything is terrible all the no, time? No, but if always, you're going no. to make a huge but plot point of that... we burned down everything well, but... we own. Well, and this is what I'm saying, right? Like there's an ending to this story that isn't we stumble across a small fortune and everything works out fine. Like I thought because old Jack was set up as this like kind of scary, like lives in the woods alone, kind of Boo Radley-esque figure, right? I thought that this was leading up to they're going to meet up with old Jack. He's going to like maybe give them some tips on how to bring in more pelts or whatever, teaches them to become better trappers. And then they're able to make a little bit more money and between that and the money that Papa makes at the logging camp, like they can afford to build a new cabin and like try again, yeah. right? Like have something, something like that where it's like, okay, things are fixable, but it's hard. going to take some effort yeah. and like it's hard. And it's like we're, we're going to learn from the consequences of our actions rather than we live in a in a two-story house now with real windows and like what a fancy floors? oven and everything's great you, actually good thing kirsten speaks raccoon what do you think um <laughs> like, old jack was doing with all those furs because he's just got four hundred dollars worth of furs lying around but the man lives in a cave on purpose yeah like, why <laughs> why does he have all these pelts um, he just really fucking hates minks. <laughs> he just has a minks in his family, and that's why he doesn't have one anymore. Yeah, Margot, you're absolutely right. And they're trying to get at that precarity by pointing to the house fire and by pointing to old Jack, just like makes it home one day and just has ticker gives out and just falls asleep by the fire and never wakes up. Yeah, which is an ideal death that is not a precarious horrible existence that is a perfect way to go uh sign me up for one old jack death please and (laughs) the other thing that really weirded me out was well papa will bury him and pray over him and also he's a good man and we know his soul is in heaven now that lars just like I'm going to tell you about the heavens and the earth Yeah, that was the men in the room. And, and it's weird that, <laughs> and again, it's that whole Protestant, like, our father is also our pastor thing. That That's, like, very yeah. much a thing. But also the idea mm, that, like, yeah. we know he was a good man, and therefore he's in heaven, so it's not bad if we take his stuff. He was a good man, and he would have wanted us to have it. Sir, you don't know this man. We know that he's... <laughs> I feel like there's a little bit of also explaining to Kirsten that, like, they're not going to be haunted, right? I yeah, think that's part of it. That's like, true. his spirit's no longer in this room. It's elsewhere. Yeah, just yeah, the I don't know. It seems, it seems like a weird... Anyway, it's, it's, it, there's um, a lot there. Uh, it's a rich text. Do we, do we want to talk I about... But I think yeah, now... Sonia? We gotta finish oh, up with do, our peek into the past, which is that where we end with Papa coming home from the logging camp and everybody runs down the driveway. There's no funeral right. for Old Jack. Old Jack dies. We promise to bury him come springtime. Yeah, no. Also, there's just like this wild. No, we've we've moved on. Like, there's no. <laughs> we've scene we've where forgotten. Explain to Mama that like, oh, we got lost in the woods. We found a cave with a corpse we spent in the it. the night with a dead <laughs> man. And we took all his stuff. Uh, there's also I don't know if this is actually one of the implications but they talk about how like tidy his cave is and how he's got like all this crockery and stuff and I'm like are they taking his crockery? They're not going to take his crockery. I, I thought so. I thought that they yeah, I thought they just fully stole all I assume stuff. they took everything. Like he's not using it. Which, That's again, fast I now. Think it's pragmatic and not the worst, but I I yeah. really like the scene where they explain to mom Recycling. That, yeah, no, we looted a dead man's house and we slept <laughs> on his floor and now we're here and we're gonna sell it uh and she's like what clever children i yep. have be sure to bury him with <laughs> grandpa's uh but there's no scene of them doing so they just fast forward until like and then papa sent the money and the stewards bought the house and 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 sold the house and everything's great and goodbye yeah 
And Papa, Papa's back yeah, and everything is fine. Yeah, go back to a regularly scheduled benign neglect. I don't think it's benign at this <laughs> <point>. <laughs> But, yeah, so um, our, what the sections are looking back a peek into the past. How, yeah. I mean, this one wasn't, like, the worst. It was mostly about yeah, more people moved west and towns grew and then mail order catalogs were a thing and I'm like, we're glossing over a lot of yeah. like genocide and horrific things but you know, I'm I'm used to that <laughs> in the peak into the past section. It's no longer a shock. Yeah, so that's the, this is, yeah, so this is the thing that um I would like to point out about this peak into the past, about why I particularly don't like it um so like they do talk a lot about trains which is great uh trains are super important and we actually have a whole break time um where i talk specifically about how trains are used for yeah this is my patreon vlog so we did a we did a whole break time i think it's our second break time since american girlies um that's specifically about how trains were used as a like colonial technology um there's a really fascinating story about the u.s and canada sort of racing building their trains um from coast to coast to sort of claim territory uh canada was really nervous that the u.s would just like move north all the way up the west coast and like claim what's now bc and be like this is ours now um so they were trying to so there's a race between the uh transcontinental and the trans canada lines um being built and they're using those to like claim all of that territory and also uh aid in aid and like there's a symbiotic relationship between the building of train tracks and the buffalo slaughter that we've also talked about before but like the the use of the the train the atrocities that follow train tracks uh across the continent is just um horrific both countries also use um labor from asia specifically uh china that is super questionable and also not mentioned um yeah the train situation is super complicated i do once again find this whole discussion of all of this uh to be so just focused on the how wonderful consumer goods are that like nobody yeah. needs to make anything anymore. They can just buy it from the Sears Roebuck catalog. And I hate that. <laughs> I also appreciated and this is I also think that it was quite a quite a take in the peek into the past about how Kirsten's only possible future is farm wife because she's going to carry on the proud farming tradition of her family yeah and it's like guys this is the 19th century she's growing up and she'll be in the late 19th century she can like work in a factory become a teacher become a nurse she might never get married or if she does maybe she'll marry like i don't know a clerk the general in the city yeah like anything and it's it's like they're talking about these consumer goods specifically and i'm like who do you think is making consumer oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like, like factories are, are running at this yeah. point and you need somebody to sell them and run stuff. Like she could be doing all kinds of like, I'm not saying she has tons of options, but like the peak into the past just really harps on about how like Kirsten's going to marry a farmer and they're going to have a large family and she'll cook and clean for them and they'll hire some farm hands. And it's like, or she could like, become okay. a teacher and I decide wanna, she never wants to get married I wanted like that's a thing that people did farmhand because just like this totally elides yes the fact that the consumer goods that she will order from the Sears robot catalog are produced by human beings with their labor uh this also celebrates the introduction of farmhands the idea that you can hire people to come help you and there is yep. A body of literature and i'm particularly thinking of a really good book called between the devil and the deep blue sea by marcus redeker which is an academic book but really fun to read uh it's about pirates uh 
So it's a rad book. Good title. But he has a whole thing about the term hands, as in deck hand, farm hand, hired hand, mm-hmm. where it totally yeah. elides the rest of the human body and it reduces you down to the function yeah. of your hands and the labor of your hands. So it's mm-hmm. not a hired person. It's a hired set of hands to operate a machine or bring in the harvest or make the dolly for the children from the catalog. Um, and so there is a kind of way in which yep. the labor that actually, like on the one hand, it's all about how like farm labor is hard and it builds character. But on the other hand, it's about like, who's doing that labor? Hands. Mm-hmm. The Yeah. The other thing that, like that's a super great point and i would really i think it'll be really interesting when we do eventually get to addy who i think is in like the second round of books because i'm pretty sure that yes she leaves and goes to an urban area like right because she's like manumitted a self-emancipated yeah self-emancipated person but um the this this whole like last paragraph where they talk about people in the 19th century choosing to live on farms and liking to live on farms and all this stuff there's a crisis happening in the the middle of the continent in the 19th century that um a political crisis right the the development of the populist party and the rights for agricultural workers and the rights for farm owners as of being represented in the in the american government right rights outside of super wealthy uh like urban dwelling landowners um, being represented and these small family farms being protected and their like needs being met by the government and those the the populist party is really uh started and driven by free black farmers living in specifically in Oklahoma, but in other territories as well. Um, And this totally just glosses over um, so much of what would be happening in this, in the same way that like so much of our media about like cowboys and stuff is all white. Um, So much of these depictions of middle America in that come from the 20th century are explicitly like all white towns all white families talking about Oregon where it is all white the reason Oregon sets up that story is because of free blacks moving out west to the frontier because at this point in time they have like if you are a free person you have the same rights uh, as everyone else to buy that land to be squatting on that land all of these things and so like a significant portion of these farmers a significant portion of cowboys of of farm laborers in general are uh like free black americans and we're just going to we're going to gloss over that and we're going to pretend like the 20th century wasn't the introduction of like jim crow and a lot of this uh, like segregation and like a drawback of rights that people previously had a drawback of access to um, like ad so, like advocacy in the government things but like also, that. Uh, I think that that's. But then that would disrupt well, our narrative that progress this, is always happening. Yeah, that's the thing. And also we are, also we're at an hour and a half of recording time at yeah, this point, yeah. so we're gonna have to. Like obviously, there's like a limit sorry, to guys. what can fit into all of this, but I do think that like this yeah. this narrative of like now they have consumer goods and all of these happy white people on farms is going to be great. A lot of the access to these things, a lot of the rights that small farmers have in in middle america come because of um political movement started and organized by free black farmers and i think that that would be a a good place for american girls to be represented this peek into the past section on is the fact that this actually has nothing to do with the book we just read Right? Like, yeah. They, they never. Yes. They, they don't buy any. Buy well, they buy a house, I guess. The catalogs. They're not talking about. Which you could buy a house from a catalog as well. Sears Roebuck yes, sold houses. They don't. they don't buy a house from the catalog. You know, and and they don't actually set up a family farm. 
except like, you know, they, they don't actually bring in any hired hands or, you know, hired workers. This, this section could be about corpse disposal on the frontier. It could be about logging, like the Oregon Trail, the Oregon logging, trail uh, westward yeah. migration. Uh, what, you know, Lars wants to go become an Oregon Trail guy. Like what are his options? Like, I know this is an American girl novel, but we could talk about like, yeah, trapping, coming of age, like pelt, the pelt economy. Like there's so many ways we could have gone. But then, Hannah, that doesn't talk about how well, good it is to buy stuff. About like luxury goods <laughs> and like use items and how, whatever. How are you? And that it's good to buy all of now, the weird little stuff that goes with your American dolls. And now I think <laughs> it is time to, to rate this book. Now it is time to rate the book, and we're rating it out of how many child grave robbers? <laughs> out of a possible five grave robbers, I'm what do you give off this with book? A strong four. There were big issues. I just like. Honestly, I think that's great. I saw the most. The characters did the most. They experienced the most. There were some consequences. There was a corpse. There was a rising action and a falling action, and really, that's all we can ask for. Four out of five child robbing children. <laughs> yep. I have to agree with you, Hannah. They're getting four grave robbers from me. One for teaching kids not to bring wild animals into the house. One for there being at least something resembling consequences. One for them actually having some historical stuff going on in this book, and one for the inclusion of and they get minus one for fire safety. They they get what? Yes, they get minus one for fire safety and the peak into the past. The peak into the past wasn't actively horrific. So this is what I'm saying. Like that. That's why it's it's a one deduction. I'll do. I'll do four as well, but it's, so I would give it three because of how bad I hate the peak into the past, um, because it's just like universally good. Trains are like just always awesome and uh, buying stuff is great, but they get one back for the fact that there is a, a dead body that they hang out with for a long time, which I think yeah, is Yeah, um, just, just before so, we yeah. kind of sign off, for today i was wondering uh how we all felt about kirsten like this is the final kirsten book that we are covering this season i know that there's a couple more tie-ins but of the original six these this is all of them what do you think Uh, i think her characterization was so erratic that it's hard to actually have an opinion about her because sometimes she's like, I really care about my family and I'm hardworking and responsible, but then other times just does things that are so wildly reckless. And I'm finding it hard. It it seems like she is almost there as a plot device within her own narrative, which is like, like she just acts however the plot needs her to act. Uh, That, I'm super. Like, I'm, I'm super ready. I'm super way? ready to move on. I'm done. I am. I am done with Kirsten. Kirsten has great stuff. Like if you want to, like if you want to get into the doll side of this, that is a dope sweater in Changes with Kirsten. She has amazing mittens. The braids are fantastic. Um, but she is so boring and so weird. And she's not weird. She's an extremely yeah. conventional girly, and I, you can really see. Yeah, but like I find that weird. For me, you can really see the tension here, and I don't know if this is going to become a recurring theme between we want to give her enough of a personality that the kids will read the books, but not so much of a personality that it's going to disrupt their imaginative play with the doll. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I, and. But uh, I have been keeping notes on our ratings. Would we like to hear how how Kirsten comes out? Yes. Yes. Let's see what Kirsten's so final her score highest is. Rating is a four, which is changes for Kirsten. I'm rating on average of our scores. 
her lowest rating mm-hmm. right. is 0.3 out of a possible 5. But <laughs> happy birthday, Kirsten. We hated that one the most. God, yeah, that one was bad. Wow. Otherwise, on <laughs> that average, one was terrible. Like, Kirsten's surprise comes off pretty well. Uh, is our second best. And yeah, it, I mean, in general, we're kind of hovering somewhere between zero and two for most of these. So it's it's not been the best. Um, if you were going to give Kirsten an overall rating, and let's make this one out of 10, because that'll make my math easier. How many out of 10? Where 10 is like Ooh. best girly, make her the first girl president. And zero is worst girly bury all the molds that made this doll under 10,000 tons of concrete hmm now see the problem is I have no familiarity with any other girly <laughs> so I'm going in blind no, no, she's she rate her rate her as the girly that she is hmm is this going to be like a girly you would vote for for class president or is this a girly you would vote this is a girly that I would forget was in my class unless she was having like some huge crisis. You know? Yeah, I feel like I'm going to give her like, a, like I would a, only a remember five out of 10. Like she gets a pass. Okay, so we get a five out of 10. She gets a passing grade maybe, from me, but that's, that's maybe it. Maybe a four just because like on my class roster I would have to like do a double check to make sure I sent her an invitation to like the birthday party or whatever like she's just so boring I would only remember not- remember her when like the teacher was like now Kirsten's not going to be joining us today because her house burned down and I'd be like who's Kirsten again yeah I'm gonna say it's a four out of ten see me after class uh from me be- just because like she really doesn't yeah, there's have there's just very nothing much there's just nothing happening there. I would maybe like when she walked in be like, "Wow, she has an amazing sweater." and then completely forget about her. <laughs> oh no, in terms of style, yeah. she's a 10 out of 10, but in terms of personality and characterization and stuff that she does, it's going to be a 4 from me. Um which gives us an average rating of I think 4. Something like that. For Kirsten. Yeah. Which is pretty um, alright. I think is I I, I think this last book really pulled it up for me. So yeah. With that, I guess um thanks for joining us on our ride through Kirsten. American Girlies is a production of the Babiaka Project. We are pl- produced by Sam Lee-Freeman. We're hosted by Sonia Ann, Margo Mathieu, and Hannah Sparwasa Soroka. Our music is composed and performed by Esther Ruth Thiel. This episode was edited and mixed by Margo Mathieu. This podcast is brought to you by Patreon supporters just like you. If you would like to support the show, please check out patreon.com forward slash Bobbyaga Project for bonus content and extra goodies. We are at Bobbyaga Project on Twitter, at the Bobbyaga Project on TikTok and Instagram. Thanks, girl.